Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. And welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn, and I am joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Retro Fighter. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. All the seeds are mine. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! Announcement! Before we head into our 28th favourite video games of all time and the rest of the episode, we want to remind you to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to it. There's loads of great video content on there and loads more coming soon, so yes, please do subscribe if you don't want to miss out on that. We also have a Patreon page for those of you who fancy supporting us a little bit more. Head over to patreon.com slash our3cents and you can see some amazing perks that you can get in exchange for a few pennies of pledges, like bonus episodes, deleted scenes and outtakes, custom artwork, loads more. Check it out. So, this week we have our 28th favourite video games of all time. 28. 28. 28. But before we do that, it's time to return to the quiz. Alright. Okay. Minty managed to pull a point back last week, so it is 37 to Chris and 34 to Minty. So let's see if Minty can bring it back to two points between you. Try me. Not today. How many dots are there on a Pac-Man board? What? 72? And, and this wasn't multiple choice? Nope. <laughs> we have multiple choice spawns sometimes that's like, what's the name of the woman in Tomb Raider? And then we're going for something like this. 256. Well, I'm going to give the point to who got closest. And the correct answer is 244. Whoa. So the point goes to Chris. Bloody hell. As somebody who spoke about Pac-Man a couple of weeks ago, Chris, that's... Uh, you know, that's fair enough. It's fair enough. Well done. <laughs> Is that just something that people know? <laughs> that's what I mean. If it was a if it was a multiple choice one, I feel like everyone would have had half a chance. But that that was really mm. just taking a wild stab at how many you vaguely remember collecting. Yeah. Well, I may as well have just said, guys, pick a number. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's next week's question. It might be. It might be. Well, there we go. Well done, Chris. You have extended your lead to four points again. Fear not, Minty. Loads of time left. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's fine. So what have we been playing this week? I tell you, I have almost finished Paper Mario. Oh yeah. I'm still having a fantastic time. It's a really big game. I'm really quite surprised just how expansive it is. Yeah. I, th- I thought I'd seen like the biggest area in the game in terms of the desert when you've got your drivable shoe. But then you get past that and the game goes all wind waker on you and you're setting sail on a great sea with mm. like a whole bunch of islands yeah, to find yeah. and solve puzzles on treasure to be found pulled up from the deep which i love as a mechanic like I, I would have happily had a whole game of just that just catching treasure but also just exploring the great sea it was oh it's fantastic like it was it was a bit daunting when i first got out on it but then the game did that great thing like it did with giving you a car shoe and it was like <laughs> here's an upgrade to your boat engine so it goes really fast and it just made it a lot more fun i had a great time getting my my paper pirate on mm. i mean like you said last week minty it is i mean significantly less of an evolution of the super mario rpg line and more of an expansion of nintendo's like handcrafted style like Kirby's Epic Yarn and the Rainbow Curse and Yoshi's woolly crafted worlds and I mean I don't have a problem with that at all because I think it's it's just a fantastic adventure game you know like you said 
you can get your pure RPG kicks from other games. And if you want to get those kicks whilst also looking at Mario, you can play Mario RPG or Thousand Year Door or the Mario and Luigi games. And I think if I was to describe this game, I probably wouldn't say it was an RPG. I would, like, well, I mentioned Luigi's Mansion as a comparison point last week. And I think like that, it's a puzzle adventure game. And much like Luigi's Mansion, it really rewards you for exploration, which is lovely. And yeah, I just I think it's a I think it's a really really good adventure game. I'm yeah having a great time. I'm right near the end, and I'm trying to go back and hundred percent some areas. I'm struggling massively trying to get all the coins on the Eddy River Rapids, which is oh that's pain. yeah. I've come very close a couple times, but uh, yeah, I'm convinced next time I'll uh, I'll get it. But I mean, basically, my takeaway from the game is that I think every game should have a button dedicated to throwing confetti. <laughs> it's so joyous. It's nice, isn't it? It's lovely. I think The Last of Us would have been great if all of a sudden Joel just went, woohoo! And just, uh, yeah, I think it would have definitely brightened some things, I think. And also, there's a role of sellotape who's actually a New York gangster, and that's fun. Mm. <laughs> Minty, how are you getting on with it? Good, yes. Uh, I've got rid of all the streamers, so I guess I'm on the last the last dungeon now that's where i've got to yeah i i really like it as well um i like it as good as a very seamless connected set of set pieces um mm. uh, i think it's gone completely the other direction from the episodic format which is just excellent like as soon as you hit a streamer get rid of it you're on to the next area absolutely seamless yeah. and i really love that uh, yeah so i'm excited to do what i assume is the last dungeon with um with <laughs> with Bowser in tow in, in that funny... You're right. Watching Bowser hobble about in his little folded napkin form mm. is absolutely joyous as well. It's brilliant. I, I like the dialogue as well. There's a funny bit that I got to this morning where Olivia said something like... Uh, said, said something to Bowser, something like... Um, you must be a really good boss, even though you're just a big scary face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. I really enjoyed the Shangri-Spa area you expect when you go to a different world or like a new area it's like okay well here's the ice one here's the sand one here's the whatever but it's like this is just a luxury spa run by toads yeah and it was great there's loads of cool stuff going on there it was lovely just yeah i think it would be in my top 100 i've had such a great time playing it Mm, high praise i think it would shunt out color splash for me for sure how about you chris what have you played this week uh i'm still going on forager I'm about 15 hours Excellent. in now, so I'm, you know, towards the end game now where I've got most stuff built, most stuff bought, that kind of thing. That's really fun. Uh, it's just been nice to sort of potter along when I'm doing other bits and pieces and uh, just as satisfying as it was the first time around. I'm still going on Alice. I'm I'm probably at, I think we're on the last chapter now, so it can't be that much longer. But as I said, it's it's all got that kind of... <laughs> That's the uh, the sentiment you want to have. God, it can't be much longer now. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's it's frustrating. It's like it's the type of game. Absolutely, if I was playing it on my own, I would have done maybe a chapter or two and said I've had my fill. Yeah, it's it's pretty and whatever else, and I, and I like certain bits and I dislike certain bits, and that's fine. But because I'm playing it with Georgia, it kind of breaks it up that we do kind of like twenty minutes, half an hour each, and then swap the controller. Yeah, and and that's helped break it up. That I think if I was just staring at the same thing. It's, it's just like I mentioned before, like if you think about how Mario does puzzles, it's like, okay, here it is in a safe environment, here it is slightly more challenging, and here's a really tough one, and then you're on to something completely different. Yeah. And, and Alice, all the platforming stuff is like, here's the easy one, here's another easy one, here's another easy one, 
Here's a further easy one. <laughs> Here's a slightly more difficult one. So every, everything you go through like 19 different revisions as opposed to just like bish bash bosh and onwards. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's fine. I'll be happy to finish it, but I have enjoyed it mostly. <laughs> I, I had a little look on Steam and I, I, I'd only played a couple of hours of it. Yeah. And I think I'd, I think I'd obviously got it cheap at some point. Yeah. Had a bit of a play and went, yep, yeah, there we go. That's my film. Yeah. I mean, in contrast, the other game I've been playing this week that is totally different uh, is I've, I've gone back and played some Deadly Premonition. Oh God. Yeah. That game. And, and I think I was inspired because, like most people, I saw the, the footage of Deadly Premonition 2 running like a dog. Mm. W- was was pretty shocked at how poor that, that seems to have shipped in, like what, what state has come out in. And I know they've said they're working to kind of patch it now and the, and the director and the developers have come out and said they're going to do what they can. I, I don't know how much they can fix that. I think there's going to be a hard limit on what the Switch can do to, to fix that engine. But what I was more shocked by was how many people said the first game ran as badly because that's not my memory at all in the times I've played it. You know, like I remember back, I played the first few hours on the on the 360 on the Xbox and had no problem whatsoever. Like it's a pretty smooth experience. It might not be like a, a super crisp resolution, but the game runs fine. Yeah. And even like the recent Switch port, I remember that getting a bit of grief when it came out, but it, it's fine. Like I've, I've started my playthrough now. I'm probably three, four hours into it on the Switch. And aside from when you're driving around kind of the open world, it, it's a little bit slower. The actual game is is fine there's, there's no issues whatsoever and, and i think it's it's a really good game it's it's a really odd strange different game uh, and and by contrast like i said alice tries to be like creepy and surreal but ends up being quite formulaic in how it delivers its its story and its content and everything else deadly premonition is is unlike most other games and for anyone on the fence that's heard the name and just thought oh it looks a bit kind of broken and, and janky that's that's part of the whole experience like it's um, it's really fun, and and you know there's loads of games that were influenced by Twin Peaks, loads of TV shows, obviously that have taken influence from from Twin Peaks, but I think Deadly Premonition manages to be like the most overt homage to to the David Lynch show, whilst also being very much his own thing. Nice, and and again, I, I think people miss that a little bit. That a lot of the reviews I read when the original one came out on the 360, kind of said it, it was too much of like a copycat of that formula. And I don't think that's the case if you actually play it, because in the same way that Twin Peaks as a show takes up the quirks of that weird, like supernatural soap opera type thing that it tries to do and then subverts it, this kind of does that in a more gamey way. So it is a standard story. It's got the detective stuff. It's got the supernatural elements and everything else, but it's got these gamey elements that break it up and make it feel like something different. Like you get a cash bonus for for having a shave in any mirror in the game, (laughs) just like taking a pause and then trimming your beard. You can stop the wider investigation pretty much dead at any point to go and collect trading cards. (laughs) There's there's just like, it's a real like mishmash of, of it wanting to be a very serious, like psychological sort of drama type game and also being really silly at the same time. So it goes from being this detective slash survival horror game, but it's also a game where you can go and spend $40 on a single cracker in a vending machine. (laughs) (laughs) It's just really, really odd. And it's unlike anything else. And crucially for me as well, it's not scary. (laughs) Like it's, it's largely or, or, you know, meant to be a horror game, but it doesn't spook me at all. So there's that. I can get through it there and have my Halloween experience as we get slightly closer to uh, October. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Shall we move on to the rankings? Yes, please. Yeah. Starting this week, we have Minty Booth's 28th favourite video game of all time. Ooh. Okay. Ooh. 
You know me as a man who loves Nintendo games. We do. But this is a game from the Xbox 360. Ooh. Yeah. So when I got an Xbox 360, I picked it up on a console bundles that you get from Argos or whatever with a couple of games. I got this game, which I'll come on to, but I also got Condemned 2 to balance it out. <laughs> okay. I got about half an hour into it before putting it Back in its case forever after I heard someone laugh in an apartment nearby. Too spooky. Too spooky. Goodness Absolutely me. too spooky. <laughs> yeah. A giggle from the corridor. Not our mister. <laughs> Back in the box with you. Mm, yeah. Thanks, but no thanks. Anyway, once I put that away, I devoted quite an enormous amount of playtime to the other game. So I think it's safe to say that most of us quite like animals, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. What's your favourite animal? My dog. Great. Oh, that's that's a cop out. Any dog. There we go. You can have that. <laughs> uh, I really like foxes. Foxes okay. are, are my favourite piece of British wildlife. I love seeing Ooh. a fox. Mine's probably a crocodile. Cool. Oh, you love a croc, don't you? Mm, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I think sweets are quite popular as well. Ooh. A, a well timed sweet can be nice. Ah. An after dinner mint. A small bag of Skittles at the cinema. A pack of six cream eggs every day from February up to the end of April. <laughs> Uh, puns are good too I mean we all groan when we hear a good pun don't we but deep down I think that's only because we didn't think of it first so you combine these three things into a gentle gardening sim and you get Viva Piñata Trouble in Paradise oh How wonderful mm. in Viva Piñata Trouble in Paradise you're a gardener and you've got a garden there's also animals made out of paper and filled with candy for you to tame and let live with you in the garden they also have uh, funny sweet-themed names like uh, like the fudge hog, the tartridge, the tunicorn, the bonboon, the salamango, and the profitamole. That's the best. <laughs> I love that. I want a profitamole. You tempt them in with different fruits and plants that they like, etc. Each one has a few requirements before they become a resident. Uh, for example, the fudge hog uh, will only visit if you have a thistle and a holly bush in the garden, and it will only stay once you set down a leaf pile as well. One of the things I really like is the fact that before they become a resident, uh, piñatas are just completely black and white. But once they become a resident, they do that nice little dance and then slowly become saturated with colour in a tiny little bloom of victory that doesn't really get old even after the maybe 500th time you see it. you found your home and now colour has come back into your life. Welcome, have a seat. Speaking of uh, plants and fruits that the piñatas like, sometimes a piñata will change colour if it eats a specific something or other. Sometimes it will become an entirely different species if you, I don't know, set fire to it or something else. Mm, lots of things do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Black>. <laughs> set fire to your dog becomes a... A hot dog. Yeah. Uh, some piñatas are trapped behind rubble or maybe even weeds. It's up to you to figure out these gentle puzzles to help the ecosystem in your garden reach legendary levels. As a game, it's just a pile of little magical things. The shopkeepers and helpers are all really fun characters. Um, the houses you make for your piñatas are uniquely tailored to their species. Birdhouses, stables, a pile of leaves, that sort of thing. If you want to breed piñatas, you have to help them out by completing a mini-game that has you collect little love candies before the time runs out. A famously effective aphrodisiac. <laughs> Breed them enough and you'll get twins and even super rare wildcard variants with, uh, with with different horns or like a a nubbin here and there, mm. that sort of thing. Just tiny little things that pop up as you gently curate a delightful garden. 
I think this might be a bold statement, but I think I love this game as much as you two love Animal Crossing. Yeah. A little quiver in your voice there, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good at designing like stuff from like a blank slate, so I did find Animal Crossing a little bit overwhelming, especially when there was just like new stuff would trickle in. So it's like, oh, well, I, now I, I, I want that, but now I've got this, so now I just put that there, that clutters all that up and all, this, all the rest of it. But when it comes to balancing design elements that unlock new pinatas, it becomes more of a fluid jigsaw puzzle than just a nice garden that you have. And it gives all the decorations just a slice of purpose instead of just being something that looks nice, which I think works better for me. The idea of putting a statue in a garden because it looks nice, completely beyond me. But setting down a bit of watercress to attract a newt gut. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah, to round off this this gentle, soothing, beautiful game, I'm just going to reel off some of the nicknames that I gave my piñatas. <laughs> see if see if you can uh, see if you can find the theme. <clears throat> so we had uh, uh, Snacky Chan, <laughs> Michael Snackson, a snack of the clones, Snackery Quinto, <laughs> Snack Black, Jack Snack, <laughs> Snackamole, Men in Snack. And snacks and Pollock. Very good. <laughs> that's a good one to finish. There we go. Viva Pinata, Trouble in Paradise. That's my 28th favourite video game. I think Viva Pinata is the last decent series rare made. Like a, a, across the 360, Cameo was dross. <laughs> the driving Banjo Kazooie was awful. Viva Pinata was really, really good. And it's a real shame it, it just fizzled out after two games. Yeah, I was really surprised when I played it earlier this year because I, I think I'd s- said on the podcast when I was playing it that I dismissed it in the past as kind of like a, you know, an Animal Crossing knockoff, mm. which it, it's it's not. And I, I was I was led to believe that by by the media, mm. those uh, those villains. And uh, and it's not. It's an entirely different type of game. Entirely different. It's closer to like a park building game like theme park or something yeah. i mean i found it less relaxing than animal crossing because there was this constant ticking timer there was like okay oh it's a new day now oh, ah, okay i haven't done that i haven't done this ah. and because like it was the same part of my brain that was used to enjoying animal crossing that was trying to enjoy this now under pressure uh, <laughs> <laughs> but i did i got a lot of enjoyment watching sammy play it which was really nice because she played it when it was uh, originally out just really lovely game although i found that i would get really attached to my individual pinatas and then would have to send them out to a party um and they'd die or they'd get eaten by a bird and they'd die and uh, that made me very sad mm. but it's all part of the circle of life you had it to is. embrace that because that's you know but then um you kill my dog i'm gonna kill you well that's it isn't it yeah <laughs> yeah in the end it all comes down to the grave it's morbid <laughs> Oh, something else I forgot to mention, which I really liked, was um, there were evil piñatas. Oh, yeah, there were. You won them over with the power of friendship, which was really nice. That's what you want. That's all you want. That's what you want in every game, to win everything with the power of friendship. Mm. For now, let's move on to your 28th favourite video game of all time, please, Chris. Of all the games on my list, this is the one I feel least equipped to talk about, which is problematic, because it's quite high on the list, but... That is because I, I could write a spiel about this game and I could talk to like a very casual fan of the title or I could try and sell someone completely new to it quite well. But my issue for this here and now is that this is a game that both of you have dominated across its many iterations and revisions. Interesting. And 
<laughs> anything I say now is going to be challenged and questioned and fact-checked. <laughs> and the progress I made through the game is probably like a tiny single-digit percentage of the collective hours you've both put in. And that's because it's The Binding of Isaac. Ah. So people know what this game is, I'm sure. Both of you do. Lots of other people will do. But if you don't, for some reason, it's it's a roguelike game. It's filled with scatological and religious imagery. It uses sort of the genre trappings of like the early Zelda flick screen dungeons, as well as like Smash TV or Robotron twin stick shooters. It's kind of like a, an amalgamation of those two styles. And because of the way it like reinvigorates itself in each play, you basically have a near infinite toy chest. You descend downwards through procedurally generated dungeon layouts. You kill all the enemies in a room, which allows you to travel to the next. And you collect power-ups and modifiers that will change your character's handling, weapon loadout, and by extension, your playstyle. And crucially, it's a game that I'm really bad at. <laughs> it's a game that I, I never mastered or got close to mastering, like I know you, you both did. And it's a game that I'm not even close to having seen the end of either. But it is a game that I really, really admire and that I really, really enjoy. Now... Minty talked about one of this game's later revisions. Was it Afterbirth Plus on your list, Minty? Yes. So that was many, many episodes ago. And at the time, both of you had quite strong opinions on how Ed McMillan, like the primary developer and designer on the game, was kind of struggling to balance the amount of content he'd insisted on stuffing into it at that point. And and whilst like me, like I said, as, as the more casual player of this, could definitely see that viewpoint and understood where you were coming from, I put the majority of my playtime into maybe the the initial flash release of the game when it was quite thin on the ground in terms of content. And by the time I got around to playing the Switch version of Afterbirth Plus, there was so much new stuff, it just felt like, oh, I could just play this forever then. There's, there's so much here, it would just go on forever. <laughs> like F-Zero-X's uh, procedurally generated <laughs> racetrack. Exactly, but because it felt like there was such a big amount of content in comparison to what I was used to, it was so expansive that I wouldn't get bored in the amount of time I was going to play it for. That perhaps if, if you were really, really pushing to sort of get through it and become an absolute champion and, and unlock everything and find everything, you'd get annoyed at certain things not working how you wanted or, or certain loadouts that basically made a run is just torpedoed as soon as you pick something up. And for me, I, I never really cared because it was just the joy of seeing something different every time. So basically the criticisms that you probably rightly have about the game are offset by my own total lack of focus and ability. <laughs> so, so you know, where, whereas, like I mentioned, like the weapons or item bloat or whatever of, of the most recent revision might have made aiming for certain tasks or goals really frustrating. For me, it just meant that the game was going to keep refreshing itself. Like a basic run was just going to be different and different and different. And it was always something new to do. And for me, every time I started a playthrough, and this is going across the the initial release on the PC, the Flash version, the Rebirth version when it came to the PS4 and the Vita, uh, and then finally the Switch version, I, I was just always surprised. And I was rubbish at it, so a run wouldn't last that long. But it would be like, oh, a new, new boss variation. Or, oh, it's a, a new weapon that I've not seen before. Or, oh, I've got a new persistent unlockable that's going to change something. Or a new enemy type. Or, or a lucky build that meant I got that little bit further and actually got like to the end of that sort of portion of the run or whatever. In time, I'm sure that if I carried on playing, there would be things about this iteration of the game that would rankle in the same way, that, that would annoy me. But because I am Joe Average, I, I am just like the, the most average Binding of Isaac player in the world, it always felt like a really brilliant, addictive, challenging, yet fair, thematically sprawling, quite well-considered, rewarding, well-paced game. And I, I never got bored. And I mean, I, I played the Flash release back when it was, 
you know, quite limited, like I mentioned, for probably 15, 20 hours, I think. And although there were niggles at the time, like the engine didn't run amazingly well because it was just running in Flash. It also had this awful bug where certain antivirus softwares, including mine, would just delete your save file because it would erroneously <laughs> identify it as malware because it was just attached to Flash. <laughs> so it was stored in such a place that it just went in the bin. Like I said, I was rubbish at it, but I had unlocked enough that I felt quite annoyed when I logged on one day and it was like, oh, gone, just completely gone. And when it finally moved on to, like, like I said, when it got its port to consoles and its new engine with Rebirth, I, I got it on the Vita and the PS4 because I think it was on PlayStation Plus when it first came out. And it had like a cross-save feature so you could do a bit on the console and then pick up the handheld and carry on. And I probably played another maybe 15, 20 hours from the start of the game then before finally getting the Switch version. When, when I first got my console, we, I imported a copy of Afterbirth Plus before it had a UK release. And I played it for quite a lot longer. I think I did make more progress this time but still never got to that point where I was seeing elements that wound me up as, as much as someone who really knew the game inside out. And it's a game that I really, really like. And, and because I am not this hardcore super fan, I'm, I'm just Mr. Regular, Mr. Casual, Mr. Why on earth are you still dying to the same enemy? Why won't you just fucking learn and stop doing that same error? <laughs> it's like, I, I don't have the same wider stock in the game outside of knowing that if I stick it on now for an hour, I, I'm going to have a really good time and probably see something new it's a game that will change enough for me every time I play it that I haven't got bored of it yet and that's that's why it lands where it does on the list because I'd never got to that point where I was annoyed at the top end because I never got to that post-game part so so this is a real kind of um I don't know an indication of how much I enjoyed it that a game that I never made a humongous amount of progress through still ranks as highly as it does because the core loop of playing it was still fun for me at that stage. Yeah. And that that's why it ends up being number 28. So officially, I've put Afterbirth Plus as as this version. But to be honest, it's it's any of the ones I played because I couldn't tell you what was added to this that wasn't in the last one yeah. <laughs> or what was in the vanilla release that, that was then taken out or modified or changed. It's just the, you know, the the collective Binding of Isaac is is my 28. Fantastic. Now, I think you're right that looking at my total playtime across four different consoles or four different systems playing it is probably around about seven, 800 hours. <laughs> exactly. And I was still happily playing it, even though there were things that I liked and didn't like. Like that, It's part of the charm of it is that it is a bit of a mixed bag, what you might get. And ev- every room you go in is a new gamble. Yeah. And if you go into a bad room, it makes you mo- like more certain that the next room is going to be good. So it makes you want, weirdly, after getting kind of like shafted by one of Edmund Millen's <laughs> stupid items, it makes you want to keep going more. And it's like, damn him for, for that, because that's like, how do you make that? <laughs> what it shows is just how addictive that gameplay loop is. Yeah. And, and I know like lots of roguelikes or roguelites, whatever they classify as, fall into that category for the same reason that you played Dead Cells for a million years. It's, it's like the, the idea that things are different enough to keep it fresh, like doing the same run essentially yeah. is still fresh and enjoyable. And, and yeah, absolutely. For, for me as, as a semi-casual player, I think it was always fun because the amount I played even though that probably amounts to 50, 60 hours across the different versions, I probably didn't see that many repeats. You know, there's a, there's a yeah. ridiculous amount of content in that game. Yeah. And, and you know, there's one last expansion coming that will take things out and change things around and add bits in or whatever. And it's just, I don't know how far this game can go before it is like at proper bursting point. Yeah. Where, where they have to just say, that's it. 
we I don't even want to see it anymore. I mean, I think the I think it, it it's past bursting point, <laughs> and I think that's why there's loads of messy bits spilled everywhere, and like oh, there's a new pool of stuff there, or you know, there's a there's a fresh intestine hanging on the wall there. That's actually a whole other expansion. But like with Ed McMillan putting more stuff in and more stuff in, some of it's good, some of it's not so good, some of it I like, some of it I don't like. And I think everybody's going to have different opinions on that as well. Yeah. And I mean, I absolutely cannot wait for the final, you know, the final expansion because that's bringing with it the um, the fan-made, what's it called, Minty? Anti-Birth. Anti-Birth, that's it. I, I can't wait for that, even though, you know, I've put in, like I said, hundreds of hours into the game and have, you know, sort of worn tired of the game a couple times in those sessions, as you would do for putting three or 400 hours into it, <laughs> obviously... Georgia didn't get that memo with The Sims, but um, (laughs) (laughs) as an aside, contrary to what Chris said last week about how she's put nearly 2,000 hours in, it turns out it's actually three and a half thousand hours, which is fair play. Absolutely. That thing you said about the gameplay loop, that is completely spot on, and just the slow trickle of unlocked things for just just having an average level of skill, like, it's, it's tantalizing. It's absolutely tantalising. It keeps drawing you back. And the deftness with which some items create synergies with each other, that is the real strength of the game, and that's all I'm going to say about it. Yeah, because even, even if you've played through the game and seen every item that is available, you haven't seen how every item interacts with every other item because, you know, you're not a billion years old. <laughs> <laughs> Should we move on to the final game this week, which is my game? Go on, then. Let's do it. I'm excited. Do you guys remember the series of books and the CITV kids show, The Queen's Nose? <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, <laughs> I remember really enjoying that as a child. That sense of wonder and the idea that you could have a coin that granted wishes. So, one December, when I was little, I had my birthday and Christmas coming up, and my parents asked me what I wanted. And I couldn't decide between two games for the Sega Saturn. Like, I wanted them both so badly. I didn't really know much about them other than the screenshots I'd seen in Sega Saturn magazine, but I was so taken in by the way they looked and I and I was I was devastated that I wouldn't be able to have both of them as a massively privileged child. <laughs> but then one day when I was out on the playground of my primary school under a small cluster of leaves in the gutter, I found a discarded coin. What? And my childhood imagination ran headfirst into the distance. Could this coin be magic could i rub the queen's nose and make a wish with this coin that clearly traveled across time and space to land in the gutter of upton school playground (laughs) and i couldn't resist the urge i couldn't right there in the playground i put the pad of my thumb to the nasal passages of our reigning monarch and prayed to the coin gods for two saturn games for my birthday So when my birthday came around and somehow I did get both games, I couldn't believe that I didn't hold on to the coin long enough to see if its magic was real or why I didn't make an immediate wish to test it out first. (laughs) Either way, my wish was granted and I haven't forgotten that I let that supernatural talisman escape my clutches even to this day. It turns out my mum had arranged with my aunt to throw in some money and had found both games secondhand, and so I was able to while away the regret at my lost magical coin with two wonderful Saturn games. One of them is my 28th favourite video game of all time. 
The other was Bug. (laughs) (laughs) Absolute stinker. Yeah, it was a sort of 2.5D platform game, which I really enjoyed and deliberately haven't revisited via emulation owing to the certainty that, yeah, it it is probably shit. Don't do it. It, it, It's worse than every Mega Drive platform game. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) When I get my Sega Saturn memory card reader and my scanline converter... I may well stream myself playing Bug on our Twitch channel. I'd love to watch it. All right, all right. You can hold me to that, I'll do that. But the other game I got was just joyous. So joyous that I've bought the game several times when it's been ported to other devices. I had it on the Game Boy Advance. I bought it as a piece of DSiWare on my DS. I re-bought it on the 3DS eShop. I bought it on mobile phone. I bought the gold version on PC. And the most recent game in its series has already appeared on my list. But today, I want to talk about one of my favourite platform games ever made. It's the original Rayman. What a looker. Oh, yeah. And then some. <laughs> like, Rayman was one of those games that was really iconic of the 32-bit era. Ridiculously, I found out it was the biggest-selling PlayStation game in the UK. It's crazy, isn't it? It's just crazy, yeah. You know, it was, it, was a, it was a classic 2D platform game. The sort of games that had populated, you know, 4, 8 and 16-bit consoles... But with the generational leap that brought with it beautifully coloured backgrounds, gorgeously animated sprites, and like really evocative orchestrated music, Rayman showed what was possible with the platforming genre in this generation. Now, the particular aspect of this game that captured my imagination the most was when I saw screenshots of Rayman flying with his hair. In fact, I remember for some reason I couldn't remember the name of the game when I was little, and... I remember saying to my brother Alex, what's what's that game with the helicopter hair? (laughs) (laughs) And thinking about how the different abilities in the game worked, this was an early iteration of my love of a sort of pseudo-Metroidvania style game. Like, as you progressed through these different worlds, you would gain different movement abilities, like being able to hang from ledges or being able to run faster, hovering with your hair and swinging from flying pig rings. And this meant that you could return to earlier levels and find whole new areas to explore once you had these extra abilities. And I, I loved this. I remember like in an early level seeing a pig ring hovering in the sky off to the side of, of a level and thinking, oh, how enigmatic. Because <laughs> those are the words I used back then. Yeah. But, and I couldn't wait to find out what, what those were all about. And the worlds themselves were, I mean, just beautiful. So much imagination on show as well. Like, you started in the Dream Forest, which was a gorgeous and lush forest filled with with giant plums. You could punch off vines and you could ride on water on, or you could time it and hit them onto the heads of explorer enemies that were in the level and then jump on them. There was a very mournful mosquito who, uh, after you defeat as a boss, becomes your friend and you can fly on him. And then you had Bandland, an amazing cacophony of orchestral music with sentient instruments trying to kill you, rogue musical notes flying off the stave at you, monks floating in the sky playing gongs and bongos, and one of my favourite bosses of all time, Mr. Sax. And then there was Blue Mountains, harsh, cruel, rocky environment covered in deadly spikes and rock monsters before you then head to Picture City, an arts and crafts-themed world where you have to run along waves of coloured pencils, avoid falling into pools of ink and thumbtacks, and then, inexplicably, defeat an opera-singing flying space washing machine with a rolling pin. Because. (laughs) Just because. 
And then you go to the Caves of Scops, the underground lair of a giant scorpion that had you explore some areas in total darkness, before finally heading to the final world, Candy Chateau, a food-themed wonderland where you'll be gliding across iced cakes as you race against a dark shadow version of yourself on your way to battle the game's main villain, Mr. Dark. I don't know who came up with the name for that, but oh, oh, Mr. Dark. What an adventure, and one that I didn't actually finish as a kid on the Saturn because it was Impossible. also hard as nails. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, not surprising, but every iteration and port of the game since the Saturn version has sought to make it slightly easier. In the original, you have three units of health and you could get a power up to take it up to five. And I'm pretty sure even in the PlayStation version, they changed that to four and six. So you had a, you know, a bit, a bit of leeway. The Game Boy Advance version had that. You start with four units of health, can go up to six, and it makes a big deal of difference. But also, they had a mechanic in the Game Boy one where if you died after about like the halfway point of a boss, you would respawn in the middle of the boss fight with all your health back, which then made them like a lot easier. And also, the GBA version has to make a few design tweaks to compensate for playing on a, a smaller screen that I think you know made things a, a bit easier as well. But, I mean, it was probably the most played game on my Game Boy Advance for all the time I had it. But the label on my cartridge is, is almost entirely worn off from sort of thumbing it in and out of the console <laughs> so many times. I just found it it was such a familiar and comforting experience that I mean, even though I'd completed it 100% like time and time again, I would often just pop it in and play a few levels that I liked. It was just lovely. I particularly loved doing a set of levels in Bandland called Allegro Presto, which were as you would guess, if you know your musical terms, very fast, very fast. <laughs> and you would you would run and slide along these slippery staves and have to jump in time to get tings that would sound out little tunes as you collected them. And oh, it was just, it was just great. It's just really lovely. It's a game, it's a game that really, I mean, it means a lot to me. And I think part of the reason for that was it was one of the few Saturn games that, that really felt like mine, as opposed to me enjoying one of Alex's games or a game that, you know, we had together. And I determinedly decided I wanted to get the game, despite the fact that Sega Saturn magazine only gave it a score of 59 out of 100 in its review, which is entirely baffling. That's brutal. Yeah. And given the success the game had, and also how well it's held up over 25 years, shows that Richard Ledbetter, <laughs> or whoever had reviewed it, obviously just... just just didn't get it. Like they must have been blinded by the fact that you could play games in 3D now and gone. What's this? Yeah. 2D? Shut up! But it's also a game that I, I did share with my brother. Like, I remember being stuck on the boss of Blue Mountains, the boss called Mr. Stone. Quite like the formal nature of how, how you uh, how you defeat those bosses. <laughs> Mr. Sachs, Mr. Stone, Mr. Dark, Sir Rayman. <laughs> <laughs> That's stupid. And so I couldn't beat Mr. Stone. And then I'd gone on a foreign exchange trip to Watignay, the town twinned with my hometown of Broadstairs, to play in a chess tournament. And I remember thinking whilst I was away, oh, I, I meant to say to Alex that he was welcome to play on the game whilst, whilst I was away, because I'd, I'd sort of hoped that he would be able to beat Mr. Stone for when I got back. But in true Dunn Brothers synchronicity <laughs> style, the fact that he had actually done this was the first piece of news I received when I returned. <laughs> so I was thrilled. <laughs> but we also shared a mutual love of the incredible soundtrack in the game. Like, I often reserve talking about soundtracks of games as a bit of a footnote in these entries, but this soundtrack is is beyond stunning. 
It was so epic and sweeping and emotional. Totally different from like the bright, happy cheeps and chirps of, of Mario or like the, the funky sort of 90s rhythms of Sonic. I spoke with, with Alex, my brother, about the music not, not too long ago and he said... The music elevates the game to a level of importance. It's so mournful and beautiful that it feels like it's coming from another dimension. And he's absolutely right. Like, it, it might sound like hyperbole, but it really, yeah, it does. It elevates the game to a level where you go, actually, this game is is, is important because of how momentous it feels playing it. And a lot of that is down to the music. There are some really great upbeat tunes in some of the levels and some amazingly atmospheric pieces and soundscapes in some. In the Picture City world, there's even a track that uses the sounds of using stationery, like like scribbling pencils or rubbers erasing as percussion, which is just it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Ultimately, I think it's a game that holds up today. It still looks gorgeous. The art style is truly timeless. It still sounds incredible. The music hasn't aged a day. In fact, like it was almost successfully crowdfunded in the last couple of years to be like fully orchestrated and re-recorded which i'm still really gutted that you know that wasn't that wasn't successful yeah, I would have I, loved I paid to have in that. and it failed didn't it it didn't, yeah. didn't happen it's a real shame i hope that he picks it up again at some point because i think it is worth doing it's so good i mean most importantly the game still plays really well it's it's really responsive it's got great fun movement mechanics thrilling boss fights it's, it's just an all-round complete experience that yeah, like I said, it means a, a, a great deal to me. When I spoke about Rayman Legends, I, I mentioned how the tone of the game had changed significantly from the original. You know, it was a lot more quirky and slapstick and comical, with the atmospheric music traded in for some fun, springy, bluegrass stuff. But I also mentioned that when I played Ori in the Blind Forest, that that felt like the true spiritual successor to the original Rayman. And I was so encouraged to read that the developers of Ori cited Rayman as a continual reference point for the game. You know, that shows just how impactful Rayman was as a game for like 20 years after its release for a games company to go, actually, there's still something in this. There's still something very important that we need to, you know, we need to preserve. It also makes me quite proud to be such a huge fan of the original game. I mean, not not quite like a full hipster, you know, I like this before it was cool type <laughs> of feeling. But, you know, in, in spite of a bad review, which was the only opinion I had to go on at the time before internet and, you know, it was also before... I knew anybody else who had the game, you know, I took a punt on it. And I've been rewarded for that time and time again, every time I play the game, every time I think about the game, every time I listen to the soundtrack. Uh, I just, yeah, I just love it. It's it's absolutely superb. It's great. It is. Rayman is another one of the, um, the Jonathan Dunn games in my head. Yeah. It's up there with Tony Hawk's 2 on the Game Boy Advance. It's up there with Link's Awakening yeah. on, on the Game Boy that I, I can't separate the memory of you either talking about it or playing it <laughs> yeah. from the game itself. Like, I, I don't have enough personal memories of these things for them to be my games, <laughs> which, which is a really weird yeah. thing to, to think about. But it's it's quite nice. You know, you know it's it's when, when someone has such a personal connection to something that it just becomes part of your yeah. own history with it as well. Some of the things you said there, it's like the Sega Saturn review, I think is you were absolutely right that this was the time when everyone wanted 3D. Yeah, and and the thirty-two bit consoles like the, the PS One and the Saturn had this ability to make these amazing lush two D games, and and no one went for it because people weren't buying it. Yeah, and it's it's probably a strange sort of vindication these days that you have series that are really well revered, like Ori now, like the Shantae games. I think definitely have a, a link to yeah. how Rayman was. 
that they can exist alongside the big budget 3D AAA action stuff because it's like it's not so much about constant technical prowess exclusively anymore. There, there's all these different avenues. Whereas I think there was definitely like everything was almost shunted down one pipe back then mm. that, that <laughs> people felt like if it, if it wasn't a 3D thing, if I couldn't jump about in, in 3D, it, it wasn't worth playing. Yeah, Amazingly, like you said, the, the public obviously didn't quite think that because of how well Rayman sold on the PlayStation. Yeah. Uh, and the amount of times it's been re-released. But yeah, what a game. What a platform game. Yeah. I mean, clearly like Ubisoft obviously had the same sort of idea as well because it took them, I mean, what? 20, like almost 20 years to actually return the series to 2D yeah. and actually make it good again. <laughs> Certainly make it actually what it was because like Rayman 2 and I, I think I've played that. I can't remember what I played it. I think I've just played it on the PC because I know it's been out on, it was out on DS and 3DS and obviously it was like on the N64 yeah. and stuff. But that it was just another 3D sort of platform game. Yeah. And it's like it lost everything about what made Rayman Rayman. And even though, like I said, stylistically, the series changed a huge amount when Rayman Origins came out, it recaptured that original spark. And I'm so glad. And I mean, it's been quite a while now since Rayman Legends. And and I know, obviously, they've released the, I mean, admittedly, fantastic uh, mobile games, mm. which are just incredible. But I, I really hope it's not too long until they uh, they release a new one. And oh, I'd love it if they if they just moved slightly back in the direction of the original to try and capture some of that atmosphere. Oh, that'd be wonderful. So there we have it. We have had another three games, our 28th favourite video games of all time. First of all, we had... Fever Pinata, Trouble in Paradise. And then we had... The Binding of Isaac, Afterbirth Plus. And finally, we had Rayman. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do share the podcast on social media, tell your friends about it. We'd love to get some new listeners in and reach some new people. You can find us on social media, facebook.com slash our3cents. You can chat to us there about these games, you can talk to us about games that you're playing, or you can reach out to us individually. You can find me on Twitter, at Jonathan Dunn. You can find me at Chaz underscore Hodges. I'm Clement underscore Boo. And please do check out our YouTube channel. I will be sticking true to my promise to stream things like Bug, Bug. and Rayman uh, <laughs> on our Twitch channel. And the videos will be up on YouTube as well. Do check out the videos that are already there and subscribe to the channel if you don't want to miss out on some great content coming up. And if you're really enjoying what we're doing, please do check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash our3cents. And do please pledge if you fancy getting a bit more, getting a bit more out of us. Why not? Milk us. <laughs> <laughs> but until next time we shall say goodbye uh, goodbye Farewell. everybody bye how does Bloodborne stack up against say Oregon Trail and is Bomberman just Loadrunner from a different point of view find out on Hardcore Gaming 101's Top Games where we objectively definitively and scientifically rank the games you nominate for our ever growing list HG 101's Top Games Twice a week, every week, right here on Greenlit. Hey, do you enjoy your commute but want to make it a little worse? It's real dumb. We hate ourselves. Hey guys, you ever like something? Well, you won't in this case. Men Like That. A podcast.